When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. SCP-4005 The Holy and Heavenly City of Fabled China The SCP Foundation exists for a pretty understandable goal, to protect and preserve humanity in the face of anomalies. They've prevented countless disasters and threats to normalcy over the years, and, depending on the canon, have a decent track record of protecting humanity from extinction. There is a concept, however, that crops up on occasion that the Foundation wants to preserve normalcy at all costs, both positive and negative. SCP-4005 concerns a situation where an anomaly promises a great positive change to humanity, but it requires a little bit of faith. SCP-4005 begins with some extremely short containment procedures stating only that containment of 4005 is no longer possible, which goes along with its Apollyon object class. SCP-4005 is an indestructible glass mosque lamp recovered from Cairo, Egypt. Based on testimony from a number of writers over the centuries, the lamp is believed to have been created in Marrakesh in the 14th century, traveling across Africa and Asia for several centuries before being brought to Cairo in the 1950s. When someone stares for several seconds at the lamp while it is lit, they will see images of urban scenes within the fire. These images possess a strong cognitohazardous effect, causing the viewer to become affected. Those affected by the lamp in this way will begin to feel a strong urge to go on a pilgrimage to the city seen within the fire, although they will claim that they want to do this out of their own free will. This pilgrimage involves traveling a great distance on foot, usually to another continent, and entering a specific opening, generally a door, cave entrance, or window. The location the person will travel to is almost always of some personal or spiritual importance to them, and upon entering this opening, they will disappear. When interviewed by Foundation staff, those affected will invariably believe that they will be taken to the city seen in the lamp at the conclusion of their pilgrimage. They claim that all of the urban scenes are of the same single city, supposedly located somewhere within China or encompassing the entirety of China. These scenes have a great deal of variety, and although none are believed to correspond to any known location, they often bear a great deal of similarity to real-world cities. The prominence of this city in affected individuals' narratives, and the possibility of its existence based on common features found within them, has led to its provisional designation as SCP-4005-2. The lamp was discovered by the Foundation in 1975, when it was removed from storage in a Cairo mosque and lit during a full congregation, 
which resulted in several hundred worshippers being affected. The resulting mass movement of people was noticed by the Foundation, who contained the lamp and detained several hundred individuals after a full investigation. We're then provided with an excerpt from a diary written by an Egyptian novelist active in the 1950s, named Omar Ibn Rashid. Ibn Rashid disappeared in 1958, approximately three years after this diary was written, and the entire diary is composed in a series of intricate and complex codes. So far, it has yet to be fully translated, which is why we're given only excerpts, which I'll read verbatim. The past is a lie. It is merely a series of intricate narratives told by people desperate to make sense of the nonsensical, all hiding some aberrant wrongdoing at the core of the chaos. I could give you a narrative of my own past, but it would be the same kind of lie. A boy raised in something approaching but not quite reaching poverty, understanding himself in a cacophony of competing orthodoxies. A primitive child of a people still becoming whole, a pious boy in submission of God, a future subject of nationalism throwing off the chains of the past, a pawn in the unending machine of capital. The man I became was also torn between these movements, moments, screaming matches, and like many of the young, I was enticed by all. Nasser's pan-Arabism intrigued me, but when I saw his salesman's smile as Cairo descended into a slum, I became disillusioned. The Brotherhood's piety seemed to be an antidote, but I soon realized it was a twisted hybrid of the modern and pre-modern. Communists and nationalists were just playing with their Enlightenment building blocks in different combinations pyramids of ancient stone or alienated labor. I felt lost. Only in the Zawiyas of the Sufis did I find any meaning. The people there could, at times, be just as dogmatic, just as narrow-minded as the rest of them. But when they thought, meditated, threw themselves into union with God, could I see some glimmer of something greater? I did not, at the time, realize what it was. And so I roamed. My books and poems were never popular. In a heterodoxy of orthodoxies, nobody cared for someone who offered no solutions, only more questions. But they netted me some small, meager sum, enough to feed and clothe myself and to indulge my curiosity with the history of far-flung places and odd curiosities. And that was how I found Aladdin's lamp. It was getting dark, and the clouds were colored black against the blue sky. Out in the desert, the sands moved and shifted, swirling odd patterns in the twilight. I was traveling in the Soviet Union, in Samarkand, doing some research for my next book. It was to be a historical novel, set in Timur's Registan. It was to be my masterpiece. 
But cloistered in a high-up Cairo flat, I had become uninspired. My comfortable, middle-class existence was no training for how to tell a story about khans and sultans, empires and wars. So I resolved to travel, and so travel I did. Stalin was dead, Khrushchev was liberalizing reforms, and I had just about enough cash. It wasn't like I had anything else to do other than smoke and argue with Sufis. Samarkand was just what I needed. The words all fell into place. I felt inspired, happy, free. The city was being destroyed by Soviet monotony, but I knew, I knew, that within its streets, its complex zigzags and already decaying utopias, was some hint of the past. I wrote and I wrote, but one thing nagged me, the conclusion. Timur lies, dying on the road to Kashgar. His desire to possess the world is quashed. His mind, at once so clever and so feeble, is unable to perceive what is happening to him. But where does his tale end? In one I gave him oblivion, a suitable reminder of his physical, human frailty but that was not satisfying. It reduced the unseen to mere facts of atoms, removing all history and concepts and the interplay of different ideas. So I gave him judgment before God and the hosts of angels, but that made the story too simple, defining his destruction upon some antiquated axis of right and wrong. I stared at them for days, not knowing which one to pick. What I needed was the answer, and I found it in a cellar. I was staying with an old friend of mine, a Kyrgyz antiquarian from Osh, who wanted to show me his newest acquisitions. He was a strange fellow. At a time when their country's history is being handed down to them by their Russian masters, he was struggling to preserve any hint of a different order, creating his own collection through scattered pieces of a different conception of living. He showed me marvels, manuscripts by Al-Kashgari and Kayam, Ilkhanid miniatures, metalwork in intricate Uzbek and Timurid patterns. He went to supper, but I stayed down, examining everything. And then I saw the lamp. It was a dusty, unprepossessing thing. I almost didn't give it a second thought, but then I was seized with an odd, romantic thought. I wanted to see this ancient thing lit up again, to transform it from some objet d'art, a thing valued only for form and meaning, into a genuine and living tool of purpose. I found my host's oil, poured it in, and lit the lamp. I gazed at it, and I saw things. I saw spires of silken light, scraping the clouds and gleaming like jewels. I saw bazaars of covered domes, in grays and blues deeper and more beautiful than anything in Persia. I saw the shape of twisting sandstone alleyways, of red pagodas fluttering in the breeze. 
I saw blue mosques placed in timeless conjunctions with sandy squares and aged cities. I saw a city, generations upon generations of a city, a catalogue of history. I understood at once. This was China, the real China. The one constructed from crude matter was only a mirage, a shadow. This city was the empire at the end of the road, beyond the iron gates of Karasar and the marshes of the Bengal. I knew that I had to see, grasp, hold the thing. I packed my rucksack, bid farewell to my bemused host, smuggled the lamp out, and set off on foot. South. Because the entrance to Al-Sin is not in the east, as ancient sages would have you believe, but in the south. I knew, instinctively, that in a hallway in Marrakesh, there is an arch that marks the edge of Urgestan. I knew this to be true. It is why I am perched on a cold night in a desert kasbah, writing these words as the wind whips around my robes. When we see a miracle, it is rare that we perceive it as such. We might be taken aback by some flash, flicker, some odd movement. We will think it a trick, concoct a narrative, and subsume it into our conception of events. Our past is a history of lies of this kind. Miracles of man explained by recourse to God, and miracles of God explained through the fears of man. Our past is many pasts, swirling concoctions to help us sleep, clashing constantly with one another. A cacophony of false utopias. But behind all of them, distant and hazy, is a true past. And that past was built into a glass lamp. We're then provided with an interview between the project leader on SCP-4005, Dr. Martha Hardcastle, and a former researcher that is now affected by the lamp, Dr. Fatma Mahmood. The two know each other, although Hardcastle now has to refer to Mahmood as SCP-4005-1A. Mahmood had apparently done something against the rules recently, saying that she had always thought that the Foundation background checks were getting far laxer Her parents had both disappeared on the same day in 1975, along with the rest of the congregation at the mosque where the lamp was discovered. She was at home, sick with her aunt, and the foundation had apparently not noticed her in the shuffle afterwards to put her in the system. She had spent years looking for them, everywhere she could, and developed an early interest in the unexplained, in mysterious disappearances, and she was good at what she did. When the Foundation offered her a job, she jumped at the chance, eventually finding her parents in the Foundation's database. She was transferred to this site, where the lamp is located, and just wanted to know what had happened to her parents. She understands that the Foundation does stuff like this, but she needed some closure. She hasn't been feeling great recently, and she's been reading the files that they have on her parents and the interviews they did. 
She read about their desperation to get out and to travel, and she just wanted to know what it was like and what they went through. So she went and looked into the lamp. She says that she saw the city, the whole of it, or as much of the whole as can be seen. It is so many things at once, all working in a timeless motion of a seamless whole. Everyone who has seen the lantern, their buildings, their cities, their paradises. She saw streets of London townhouses, more beautiful and vast, in straight and twisting boulevards all mixed together. She saw dusty prisms like of Turkish houses, their past and present selves all merged together. She saw colonial cities dreamed up by old Americans, with steam over wooden houses and bumpy carriages riding through the streets. She saw concrete blocks rising from the deeps. She tells Hardcastle that she doesn't really know how to describe it other than pure creation. The memories and histories of a thousand peoples all jumbled up. Hardcastle asks what the city looks like from the outside, but Mahmoud responds that you cannot really see it like that, as it's so many things at once. It's an inland city, an external city, a city built around a central plaza like the colonies of old, but all the central plazas mark different centers. Churches, temples, mosques, canals, bridges strung from skyscraper to skyscraper, Avenues of decadent sin, falling into one another into a cascade like Kowloon. It is a place where the memories of the thousands who have stared into its light all crisscross across eternity. Hardcastle remarks on her purple prose and says that a place like this can't exist, as it doesn't make sense. Mahmud responds that it makes its own sense. She says that the denizens stared at her from atop an iron gate and planted the city in her head. They were once human, but are now creatures making and unmaking themselves tirelessly. Hardcastle says that they've heard this before, with a lot of affected people claiming that they have some sort of living link to this place, that they carry it with them in the images they saw. Mahmoud says that she heard the same things, but now she gets it. When you pass through, you change, losing parts of yourself, or they're transformed into something else. The denizens of this place live as if in a constant dream, and they've shared that dream with them. One single, unified, shared dream, a wire running through their brains. Hardcastle says that they hadn't thought of this all being a shared dream, but there is no actual city. Of that, she is certain. If it is a dream, it is a dream of the unattainable, and maybe that's the joke. She says that a utopia simply cannot exist, although it's generally surprising to hear a Foundation researcher say that anything can't exist. She asks Mahmoud why she has not tried to escape, like the others affected by the lamp, but Mahmoud says that she already has. Pilgrimages don't necessarily have to be journeys on foot, and hers is entirely different. She doesn't speak more on the matter, however, 
only apologizing for the trouble she's caused. We're next provided a curated list of various D-class that were exposed to the lamp, where they were born, and where they ended up disappearing. First, a D-class born and raised in Venezuela saw in the lamp a series of whitewashed coastal dwellings by a green ocean, along with a beautiful woman playing a violin to a postal worker. They ended up disappearing in a cave on the Venezuelan coast near their hometown. Another, born in London but raised in Canada, saw an underground London, but somehow wrong. They disappeared at the entrance to SCP-1678, un-London. Another one born in the UK saw a large number of factory workers emerging from a pear factory. The D-Class claimed that this represented the perfect way to live, a perfected form of Victorian-era capitalism, and they ended up disappearing in the cellar of a London townhouse. A fourth D-Class born and raised in Shanghai, reportedly saw the entire city, but would not elaborate, instead spending the rest of his time before disappearance claiming to be the brother of Jesus. He disappeared in a gateway in China. Another D-class, born in Iran but raised in LA, saw a large palace with many blue domes on its roof. The body of the palace, however, was reminiscent of housing developments in St. Louis. They disappeared at the entrance to a palace in Iran. Another, born and raised in Buenos Aires, saw a large library which stretched on forever, with each book being better than the last. They disappeared at the entrance to the National Public Library of Argentina. Still another, born and raised in Marrakesh, saw an old man sitting on a carpet in some form of courtyard. They disappeared in a doorway in Morocco, with escorting agents noticing the name Omar ibn Rashid carved into an external wall of the mosque. Another, born and raised in Montenegro, did not report on what they saw in the lamp, instead gouging out her own eyes while repeating the phrase, it does not have to happen, I am free I am free. She disappeared in a large door made of silicon in a factory in her hometown. Finally, a D-class born in China but raised in Cairo reportedly saw large numbers of men, women, and children standing on an iron wall and staring at Dr. Hardcastle. The D-class did not elaborate on how they knew what these subjects were staring at, but Hardcastle reported feeling a sense of profound unease during the experiment. The D-Class disappeared after passing through the Iron Gates, a mountain pass in China that was part of one of the traditional Silk Road routes. On May 30th, 2028, several members of Site 867 spontaneously became affected by the lamp, seemingly at random. After a few hours, approximately 20% of the site's staff had been converted. Afterwards, Hardcastle went back to interview Mahmood to discuss it. Hardcastle is angry, and becomes even angrier when Mahmood says that this is all for the greater good. The site is on lockdown. Half the staff has been shoved in cells for trying to escape, screaming about going on a pilgrimage, 
and a bunch more managed to flee into the woods. Mahmood says that this isn't her decision, and it can't be stopped. The great pilgrimage has begun from all across the world, people coming to the city, the Just Kingdom. Hardcastle replies that people still die in this city, as Mahmood told her that herself. Mahmood responds that their creations do not die, instead lasting for an eternity, falling into ruin and then out again just to see what it looks like in different colors. There they can be happy, free, able to turn their needs and desires to other things because the city has lifted them up. It is a gift. Hardcastle says that she keeps saying it's a gift, but thousands of other places promise the same thing, like Alagada, the Tangential Frontier, the Whisper King and his army of nightmares. All she sees is children looking in the mirror and throwing themselves on the rocks, hoping that there was water below. Instead, they're diving into oblivion, into the eel's maw. She admits that at least theirs is a prettier death, but Mahmood just tells her not to talk about it like that. Hardcastle again asks her to give her something to work with, but Mahmood cannot. Even if she wanted to, which she doesn't, there's nothing that the Foundation can do to stop this. The city was constructed by people, and now it's calling them to it. She says that it's time that the world was changed, that the whole edifice was cast aside. She asks her to imagine not having to worry every day about who you are or what you are. Imagine being in a place where it all makes sense, where they don't have to waste their lives on the struggle. Hardcastle responds that the struggle is what lets them create, but Mahmood isn't convinced. She asks if tortured geniuses are so clever because they are tortured, or are they geniuses despite the torture? No one has ever wondered if maybe geniuses are made to suffer by people, and that we'd see a lot more of them if people like the Foundation didn't lock them in cages and make it so that people could only express beauty through pain. She says that there is a just kingdom, and the people affected by the lamp are creating justice and giving people what they deserve, a real chance, a world that really is theirs for the shaping and which won't be ripped away from them. She says that mankind doesn't stink, but it has a hell of a lot that's wrong with it. They'll remove the need for vice and evil and they'll do it with kindness. Hardcastle tells her that she sounds like some student activist, and that all of these dreams are doomed to fail. She's older than Mahmood, and she's seen the world burn and shake and tremble. All of her dreams are dust, and hers will be too, or she will be. Mahmood counters that she's just jaded, and just because she's failed doesn't mean that they will. They're making a world where people can be people, where we can all be free and create and be liberated from the crushing burden of their chains. Hardcastle says that she's seen a thousand people like this, standing up on barricades and shouting about what they want. 
If her world is really made by us, then it'll be just as bad as everything that's gone before it. It'll be blown apart and its creations will be scattered. She asks Mahmood how she knows that this lamp is really showing them a city, and that it's not just some ancient god luring them in with promises and lies just to consume, imprison, or enslave them. Mahmood replies that she doesn't, but she has enough trust to try. She asks what's the point in this endless grind, this normalcy that the Foundation is so desperate to protect. Why not try to change the world and have a little chaos? The Foundation had everything, but they'll take that and give them back the gift of a better life. She says that Al-Sin has become a myth again, and by hints of shadows, word of mouth, or any recognition at all, it'll spread like a virus. She tells Hardcastle that there's a better world out there, in the kingdom at the end of the road, in the justice at the end of all islands. But Hardcastle ends the interview and has Mahmood restrained. We're then provided another set of decoded entries from Omar ibn Rashid's diary. It reads, The present is a lie. It is a series of moments we try to give context to, but the context has been erased and written all around it leaving only the confusion of the throng. I have never thought much of pilgrimages before now. The religion of my country has always had one, vast one, the yearly Hajj. It has had shrines to Sufis and other holy men scattered across its lands to which people flock. These may be fewer every year, but they still hold power. But I... Bourgeois and modern as I am, never thought much of them. They seem like a frivolous pursuit for those determined to show off their piety in social and conventional ways. I know better now. The pain, hungry, fever of a pilgrimage is not there for the sake of vanity of mindless, flagellating asceticism. It is there as part of a journey a journey which changes you. It makes you better. I walked across the world, one step in front of another. It was hard at times, but slowly it became routine and then enjoyable. There was something real about it, something so human. I begged and sold and bartered my way across Persia, Syria, into Africa, and to the city of my youth. It was there I left the lamp. I had, in moments of despair, filled it with oil and lit it to stare again into my heart's desire. I saw the streets and houses, the palaces. I saw kings who existed not as people, but as props. And I saw an old man, laughing like a little child as he wandered the endless streets of China. Imagine it is the 14th century, in Christian years, the 8th in ours. Don't think of it as time travel or thinking about the past. Think of it as a present which once was and might be again. 
For the people of this earlier time, our recent past is their future. They have an entirely different notion of time, too, for which events in both our past happen differently and can take on very different meanings. This is the present, just the present in another context. Other times never really die. They are merely locked away where we can never see them. There is an emir living in a citadel. The citadel is in Marrakesh. Once, this city was the seat of Almoravids and Almohads, but they are long gone now. It is surrounded by walls of ochre, which give the city its nickname, the Red City. It is beautiful under the summer sun, but its beauty is the beauty of the past. Of course, we know that the city would reach great heights again under the Saadis, but this emir does not know that. To him, he simply rules over an old and decaying city, while the Marinid seat in Fez is coated in glory. At night, he has bad dreams. As he sits within the citadel, he tosses and turns. He loves his city. He loves its walls, its madrasas, its citadel. He loves its green palaces, courtyard houses, bright-colored handicrafts. The walls upon walls upon walls, winding in ways incomprehensible to some, but making perfect sense to its inhabitants. Their mahal neighborhoods and family streets aligned in an order of utmost security. His city is dying. He sobs as the nightmares come of its fall, of armies of Berbers, Malians, or Franks storming across the Maghreb and not even stopping to loot. He wants an answer, a solution. He wants his city to last forever. One day a traveler comes. He has come from the kingdom of Al-Sin, far away even to the farthest fringes of the Dar al-Islam. China, he knows, is where all the beautiful things come from. Once on campaign, he was shown a beautiful miniature from the work of Rashid al-Din, the Mongol vizier who died when he was a child. They had faces like the moon and colors that weaved with one another. He had seen their handiwork, trailing down the Pax Mongolica and into the bazaars of Morocco. The traveler tells him similar stories. He tells him of Kublai Khan, of the thousands of nations in subservience to him, of the palace of Khan Balik and the sprawling market of Kanfu, red pagodas which glinted in the light, a kingdom without beginning and apparently without end. The emir was transfixed. He wanted it. He wanted all of it. Marrakesh might fall, but he could glimpse a city like no other, where nothing ever ended, where milk and honey poured from the mountains. He could not see a way to transform Marrakesh, but the very knowledge of this mythical place's existence was enough. He could not travel to the east himself, being an old man with too many duties but he was desperate to see the cities regardless. In Marrakesh there was an alchemist. His name was known to the emir, but it was always dark, clouded. 
this man had few scruples and few pleasantries. The emir came to him, hidden, disguised, and requested that he make him something. Something that would allow him to see, for one single instant, the entirety of Al-Sin. The alchemist nodded and set to work. He took glass, metal, bound them together. He infused in them strange symbols and devices. He made it beautiful. He placed oil in it. He gave it to the emir. The emir lit it and stared into the flames, and as he gazed transfixed, the alchemist left, not daring to look at his own creation. Because the alchemist had lied, he had no idea how to see across the oceans and mountains, so he did something else. He created a world and let the emir pour his own vision into it. What the emir saw was not Al-Sin, but the contents of his mind being brought to that city. It was created by him, it was part of him, and he was part of it. But it was not enough for the emir. He was transfixed, maddened. He saw Utopia. Under the cover of darkness, he left his citadel with only a robe, some food, and some water. He was never seen again. Inside the lantern, inside the city, a thousand different presents exist. The particularities of each moment caught in this great accident, this mirror to an emir's mind. We, his humbler successors, have never managed to shape the city as he shaped it merely by a glance into flame. It was designed for him. But we have followed in his footsteps. We have found our routes to China. For all traveled to China for the people of Morocco was necessarily hard, necessarily a pilgrimage. And once inside, we have altered and changed and shaped the city beyond what would have been imaginable to the alchemist, to the emir. His heavenly Al-Sin, his twisted Marrakesh, is real. It is perfect. It is possible. All it requires is belief and the effort of our twisted feet. We're then given another log, this one of the Foundation's various attempts to contain SCP-4005, the effect of which is now spreading on its own. A full lockdown and quarantine of Site-867 failed to contain it to any degree, and the effect began to rapidly spread to other towns and cities nearby. Within a few days, the Foundation attempted to relocate every known affected person to a remote site in northern Canada, but by this point the effect was spreading randomly across the world. Recognizing the writing on the wall, they then turned to various ways to kill anyone affected by the lamp across the globe, with either technology or anomalies. They also began quickly researching any methods possible to immunize people from the effect. Both of these avenues failed to produce results. A week after this began leaking out of Site 867, 12.5% of the global population was affected, 
and the Foundation was trying to contain the pilgrimages by locking down all transport and establishing large-scale curfews and population control. Anyone known to be affected was to be immediately terminated, and broken masquerade protocols were initiated. This seemed to be successful at first, but affected individuals quickly began using alternate openings to enter the mythical city. Three days later, they tried removing everyone not affected to remote locations, but the effect was capable of manifesting even in isolated populations. Soon, nearly 40% of the world's population was affected, and there was a thought of using SCP-2000 to reset things, although this motion was denied by the O5 Council. Another proposal, consisting of ritual sacrifice to an expunged entity, was also denied. Before long, 90% of the population has been affected, and there's another proposal suggested involving SCP-3799, an anomaly that blanketed an alternate timeline with anomalous snow that converted every human to snow. This proposal was also shot down by the Council, who then demanded the immediate reclassification of SCP-4005 as Thaumiel meaning that they're now affected as well. They also demanded that Dr. Hardcastle and the remaining personnel at Site-867 be sent on a pilgrimage, but this was countermanded by Hardcastle. Fifteen days after this all started spreading, there's only one human on Earth not affected by SCP-4005, Dr. Hardcastle, who has reclassified the anomaly as Apollyon. She meets one last time with Dr. Mahmood, asking her why she hasn't run off with the others on her pilgrimage. Mahmood says that she hasn't finished here yet, but Hardcastle replies that there's nobody left, including her husband and children. She never plans on going, however, as she is certain that there is no utopia or paradise, just an endless struggle. She asks how can a city that's everyone's perfect city even work, as what about the people who hate cities? Mahmood replies that they create green spaces in the center, so vast that they never see the rest. Each park is surrounded by the buildings, constructed in such a way that they can only be seen by those who should see them. Hardcastle asks who decides who should see them, to which Mahmood says... The city does. Whatever works for each person, whatever they want. A true utopia is a place where people can coexist and all be happy. It is not heaven, but it is something more real. Hardcastle, however, says that she'll trust in the real world. Mahmood asks her who defines what is real and what is the lie. The distinction is only in her head. She says that Hardcastle is remarkable, as the only people even capable of resisting the effect were those who understood the anomalous and understood what was happening to them, but they all saw the light eventually. She, however, is still soldiering on, and she can't see the beauty in what's going on. She can't even accept the idea that maybe the world could be better. Hardcastle, however, calls all of them cowards for running away from the real world. 
Mahmoud says that what she doesn't understand is that it's not a cognito hazard, and they're all going of their own free will. They saw something beautiful, and they wanted it. They're all going on a great pilgrimage, and even though pilgrimages aren't always safe, they're all walking until they find the place they are meant to go. Her pilgrimage, however, is Hardcastle, and convincing her to go. She opens the door to the room they're in, and says that this is her iron gates, but it will only open for her if Hardcastle comes with. Hardcastle isn't budging, though, and Mahmoud begins explaining that the city is divided into districts, each forged by a single person, and each district converges on a central point. She tells her to not mind the impossibility, as physics is only a convention of this universe. The form of the city, the way it is perceived, is what makes it. The same place can seem totally different depending on the image of space and its absence which we form, and at the center lies the answer. Hardcastle pauses and asks what the answer is, to which Mahmud replies, an emir from Marrakesh. That's all there is there, a single Moroccan courtyard wrapped in four walls and an emir who smiles. He smiles because he knows that there is good in this world, because he knows that there is an answer, that mankind can improve its own lot. He smiles because he knows that his city will never die, because his city is a Marrakesh in the stars, a fable of all sin. He is happy because he believes. After another long pause, Hardcastle says that all her life she never believed in anything, neither God, nor man, nor creations. And all her life, all she's done is lock things in boxes to stave off death for another day. She never dared dream that they could change it, never dared to hope. Mahmoud says that it is their lot to be bound to a wheel that spins eternally, and asks Hardcastle to come with her and smash the chains and be free. With that, the log ends. The last section of the article is another set of translated entries from Omar ibn Rashid's journal. The translation team insisted, shortly after becoming affected by the lamp, that Hardcastle preserve these excerpts in the Foundation database. She acquiesced to this request shortly after she accepted the fact that she had also become affected. The entries read, The future is a lie. It is a desperate hope projected by desperate men onto the fog they cannot see, only for it all to collapse within the inevitability of oblivion. When I think of my country, I see many futures. I see the completeness of various tyrannies, of Nasser, or the Brotherhood, or the Liberals, or the Fascists, or the Marxist, or whatever else springs up. Each of these knows what the past is, an endless system of nation, faith, or class. Each of these knows what the present is, a series of problems to be fixed. And each of these knows what the future is, 
a series of dystopias or utopias spiraling into an inky void. And behind this all, Cairo grows like an engorged monster that has no control or energy. A mass of people emerging from ancient communities and lured by the bright lights of the city. Cairo seems to be a system, a unified, singular thing that makes sense and provides answers. But this is a lie. All cities are chaos, dependent upon their surroundings. They are defined by being not the country, just as the country is defined as being not the city, but they bleed into one another. Streets, squares, markets perceived one way by one angle are seen completely different by another. The view from above, below, in the street and from the distant plain alter the system, make it stranger. And history is just the same. The events are just the building blocks, the infernal cacophony of motivations, understandings, paradigms we slip into it to define trajectories of time, swirl and alter and change. An endless scream of orthodoxies all bound together, all things subsumed into a system which, by subsuming all, negates itself. Past, present, future, all lies, tattered ideology imposed upon an unwilling past. All is lies. All is not. But deep within our buried hearts, deep in our inner convictions, we all share the desire for something better, something more whole. My entire life has been defined by false truths, enough to make a man weep that nothing will ever move. But perhaps there is a history which is not a lie. A history defined not by the wants of the present, but by a comprehension of the struggle of the poor, the fables of the believer, the thousand incontrovertible narratives clashing with one another, to create a glorious, beautiful whole. What if Cairo's endless concrete blocks were transformed? Arabesques and Mercanas sweeping over their windows and walls, twisting against one another in patterns of infinity. The people inside raised from their squalor to become princes, to become heroes, to become saviors. Instead of the endless fluctuating chaos, a world governed by narrative, purpose, movement, with everyone swimming in a beauty of their own devising. I understand them now. I understand the ideals that beat in men's hearts. There is a city, on a hill, through a door, under a cave. It is a city born from a long and tired pilgrimage. And when that pilgrimage is over, it becomes a maze of dark streets, each opening onto one another. A labyrinth of different histories all rubbing up against one another. Istanbul bleeds into Beijing, bleeds into Tenochtitlan, each vaster and more terrible than their earthly counterparts. You walk through the chaos. You walk through the families as they cook meals over antique braziers and construct prisms of light 
refracting and refracting until they negate themselves. The many districts all focused endlessly on a singular point because all of them are variations on that singular point. You push through the fog, through looming tower blocks at dusk, through sand-swept Moorish palaces, through twisting Zulu kraals and mud-spun mosques of Timbuktu, through the eyes of African residents and European dreamer. In the center of the web, at the perfect location of cosmic time, the crossroads of the city, lies a palace. It does not look grand. It does not look like anything special, just a red house in Marrakesh. And in it is a courtyard. And inside that is a grey-faced emir, who is smiling, just smiling sitting on the ground and smiling at a sun that washes over a city that will never die. And he smiles because he knows that utopia is possible if one only steps, inch by inch, into their own creation. We've looked at some SCPs like this before such as SCP-6000, in which humanity comes to an end, but it's a bit more nebulous on whether that ending is actually bad or not. There is certainly a pessimistic way to approach this one, with the lamp being much more malicious than its adherents make it seem, and the people that disappear don't necessarily end up in a utopia. I don't believe that's the approach that the author intended, however. SCP-4005 speaks to a fundamental concept that practically every person on Earth shares, in that this life could be better in some way. How it could be better differs, and the degree to which people believe that this change is possible differs, but it's a rather universal thought. SCP-4005 came about when a leader of Marrakesh began to fret about the state of his city, during a time when it was dying despite his love for it. He then heard tales from a traveler who came from China, who told him of the glory and beauty of his kingdom. The emir was transfixed by these tales, and even though he knew that these stories would do nothing for his own city, he wanted to see this kingdom, all of it. He went to an alchemist in disguise, and requested something that would let him see this mythical kingdom in its entirety. The alchemist made the lamp, but he was unable to create something that would actually provide a view of the kingdom. Instead, what he made was a new world, one that didn't physically exist here, and it allowed the emir to pour his vision of what China, or Al-Sin, looked like. In his mind, this was a utopia, a paradise, and so he influenced this world to be like that utopia. He then left Marrakesh, never to be seen again, and the lamp sat until it was later discovered and spread. Anyone that views the lamp now sees this mythical utopia, which they then add to with their own idealized world. If its followers are to be believed, they then go off of their own free will to pass through and travel to this kingdom. They do this because our world is hard and filled with lies, outside of people's control, there, however, is a world that they can shape themselves, and make it what they will. 
Dr. Hardcastle refused to believe that this was possible, despite everyone else she knew heading off to disappear. In the end, she followed suit, not necessarily due to Dr. Mahmood's arguments, but perhaps due to not wanting to be the last person on Earth, especially after losing her family. Or, perhaps, she was simply finally ready to believe that there could be something out there better than this world. It's an interesting SCP, filled with prose and flowery language, and with an unusual dose of optimism. Perhaps humanity simply held hands and shuffled off into some great abyss, or maybe they actually found a better place.